Hi, this is Elia Fishman, and welcome to part two of everything you want to know about uh, the latest and greatest in CT and we're afraid to ask. And what I'll start off with is some recent articles I've read on pancreatic endocrine tumors. And it's interesting, pancreatic endocrine tumors are what typically we would call islet cell tumors, but as I'll show you in a moment, that's really the wrong name. So in terms of some of the basic background, prevalence 1 in 100,000 people, 1 to 2% of all pancreatic tumors, though we seem to be seeing them more frequently, is in a younger population than typically adenocarcinoma in the fourth to sixth decade of life. About half the tumors are non-functioning, and I'll speak about this a little bit later again. The point is, it's not so much non-functioning as not hyperfunctioning, and 99% of these are sporadic, though occasionally do occur in about 1% with certain syndromes. Good article by Lewis, and I'm going to be quoting a lot of information from this article in radiographics, definitely worthwhile reading. And they make the point very clearly that these neuroendocrine tumors have been referred to as islet cell tumors. However, that term is no longer acceptable because of evidence that they do not arise from the islets of Langerhans, but rather from ductal pluripotent stem cells. So think about PET, pancreatic endocrine tumors, easier to say. Clinically well-differentiated PETs are characterized as those that produce a distinct clinical syndrome, functioning or syndromic tumors, and those do do not. Again, non-syndromic or non-functioning, with the point, of course, being that there is some function. Now, they are associated with syndromes, I mentioned about 1%, MEA type 1, von Hippel-Lindau, and neurofibromatosis type 1 are the three things uh, we do pay attention to. They're uncommon, but something to think about. Now, if I look at the varying types of uh, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors, you can put them into six categories, five hyperfunctioning and one not. Insulinomas, gastrinomas, glucagonomas, VIPomas, and somatostatinomas. And you can see each of these is associated with a syndrome and symptoms. And in fact, often it's the symptoms that allow you to think about the diagnosis even before you do the CT scan. We'll also look in a moment at the average size of the lesions and the common location. There is some variability, though not a lot, between the two. So what about insulinomas? We typically think about the Whipple triad, hypoglycemia, dizziness, vision changes, palpitations. But that hypoglycemia is the critical one. That's the one how patients present. Gastronomas, we're thinking about Zollinger-Ellison syndrome, peptic ulcer disease, diarrhea, esophagitis, really thick gastric folds. Glucanomas, it's that 4D syndrome, dermatitis, diabetes, DVTs, and depression. The... Um, this is the one that comes to you from the dermatologist because they have a certain specific rash that's classic glucagonoma. So the rec even says rule out or find glucagonoma. Typical symptoms, necrolytic migratory erythema, diabetes, and thromboembolism, but it's that rash that really makes the home run. VIPoma is again the history. WDHA syndrome, diarrhea, really bad watery diarrhea, think cholera hypokalemia, achloridia, again, this profuse watery diarrhea, weight loss, hypokalemia. Again, you got to be thinking about that possibility. Somatostenomas, uh, if I can pronounce it, somatostenomas, inhibitory syndrome, think about diabetes, diarrhea, diarrhea, and cholithiasis. The non-functioning ones, again, there's no associated syndrome, but presentation could be weight loss, palpable mass, 
abdominal pain, but many of these are incidental findings. And particularly these days, this incidental finding is becoming more and more common as we use early phase imaging, we are picking these up more frequently. Now, when you look at these, insulinomas are typically the smallest one. We talk about one centimeter, but let's say under two cm throughout the gland, no specific location. Gastrinomas occur in this triangle. When they're in the duodenum proper, they're under a centimeter. They're a bit larger when they're in the pancreas in the three to four centimeter range. So think duodenum, then pancreatic head, but that triangle we'll speak about in a moment. The other ones are all pretty large, five to eight centimeters. Glucogenomas, VIPomas, classically in the tail of the pancreas. Soma, somatostatin omas, pancreatic head, and non-functioning lesions basically throughout the gland. So what about CT findings? The CT findings actually are not that different regardless of the symptoms. Now, size will have impact on enhancement, but here are some of the points. Typically, fairly well-circumscribed solid masses, masses that displace rather than invade surrounding structures. They're hypervascular, particularly in arterial phase imaging, but they maintain increased vascularity in venous phase imaging. The smaller lesions are typically more homogeneous. The larger lesions, particularly over 6 cm, tend to be more heterogeneous, often with cystic changes, necrosis, and calcification been around longer and occasionally we will see absolutely cystic lesions that simply have enhancing rims but are purely cystic so that's an unusual appearance but something to think about liver mets are classically markedly vascular and even the adenopathy that occurs with these tumors is typically hypervascular on occasion but it's a small occasion that the lesions are better seen particularly smaller lesions on venous phase imaging but that indeed is very rare. If you don't do arterial phase imaging, you're going to miss many of these lesions. So some examples. Here's a nice pet coming off the anterior aspect of the body of the patient's pancreas. This was an insulinoma. You can see it very nicely on the 3D as well. Well-defined hypervascular faint calcification here. Again, this lesion is not perfectly homogeneous, even though it's only a centimeter in size. As I mentioned, the lesions get larger. You have vessel involvement. Here is splenic vein being occluded, but you can see the large vascular lesion areas of necrosis. And when you look at the volume rendering in MIP, you really appreciate the invasion uh, of the splenic vein with occlusion and the extensive collaterals in the perigastric and gastric region. You can see the metastasis. Another example, a large um, pet tumor of the body and tail of pancreas with very impressive vascular metastasis. Could this be hepatoma in the liver? If that was the only finding, the answer is yes. Can look very similar to multifocal hepatoma. And here's just one more set of images. You can see the vascularity of the primary tumor and the metastasis tend to be about the same. And here's just one more example. You can see the collateral vessels very nicely shown. I mentioned to you about cystic lesions. Here's a great example. Could this be a multilocular cystic nephroma? Could this be a necrotic um, adenocarcinoma, those are possibilities, but nice cystic lesion, nodular walls, enhancing rim. Think about cystic neuroendocrine tumor. Here's a few more images of that patient. It's something we don't think about typically, but it's a really, really good diagnosis. And here it is again in the coronal and 3D views. Again, that cystic component is indeed very impressive, and I'm so impressed I'm showing you a whole number of images. 
It's not only in this case, here's another example of a cystic neuroendocrine tumor in the head of the pancreas. You might think about a gist tumor, you might think about necrotic nodes, but this really is in the pancreas, pushes the portal vein. So again, larger neuroendocrine tumors can be cystic and can have calcifications. And in this case, you can see that the arrow had portal vein involvement. Very nice example. Okay, let's look at some of the specific cases. Insulinoma. Most common functioning pet tumor accounting for 40% of all functioning pets. Usually sporadic, but up to 30% will occur with MEN1. Patients are younger, average age is 47. Female to male ratio is a bit in favor of women. It's rarely malignant, and again, that Whipple's triad. Think about hypoglycemia. We mentioned before they're usually less than two centimeters in size, but it's not uncommon to be one centimeter in size or less, and that's one of the challenges in diagnosis. The uh, frequency is throughout the gland, so it's not just in one portion of the gland. When they get larger, that's when they'll spread to adjacent nodes and potentially even the liver. CT used to be 30% accurate in the old days. Now it's 95 plus percent. So if you do the study correctly, you're going to find the lesion. Look at this one, for example. This is five millimeters in the head of the pancreas. You even can see a small branch vessel going directly to the lesion. MIP imaging, as in this case, is very nice for picking up small vascular lesions. And if we've discussed this in the liver, we also discuss this in the pancreas. And here's one more good example. Another case. And this case makes the point. Here's a lesion a bit over a centimeter in the head of the pancreas. Very, very obvious on arterial phase imaging. Not a difficult diagnosis. But look at the images left to right 30 seconds apart. Image on your left arterial phase, there's the obvious lesion over a centimeter. Image on your right, where's the lesion? You can see when I circle it, even in retrospect, you can't find the lesion. And these are the same levels. You see the portal vein is opacified image on your right, so it's 30 seconds later venous phase. This makes the point very nicely that what ends up being very obvious lesions on this arterial phase imaging may not be very obvious if you wait a little bit longer. So it does make the point that timing is everything. Right place, right time. If you don't do that early phase imaging, look at the venous phase on the left. You're not gonna see the lesion even though it's there. So very, very important thing to recognize. Okay, what else? Gastronomas, originally described by Zollinger and Ellison way back when, that triad of peptic ulcers in unusual locations uh, in the presence of gastric acid hypersecretion uh, and a neuroendocrine tumor. They're the second most common functioning neuroendocrine tumors, but occur with a frequency less than half that of insulinomas. Age range is about the same, fifth decade of life, slightly more common in males than females, and again, most cases are sporadic, but occasionally with MEN1, you will see it. Um, as we said, patients with functioning pets with MEN1 um, you know, do occur, but it's a small percent. Um, those tend perhaps to be more commonly malignant, but about 60% of gastronomists in general develop malignant behavior. Elevated gastrin levels lead to peptic ulcer disease, which is severe, often post-bulbar ulcers, makes you think about it, very thick gastric folds. And serum gastrin levels, which are typically under 100, are typically over 1,000. So it's not minimally elevated gastrin, it's markedly elevated gastrin levels. 
As I mentioned, they can occur in the duodenum or in the pancreatic head. It's that so-called gastronoma triangle, an area bounded by the junctions of the cystic and common bile duct superiorly, second and third portion of the duodenum inferiorly, and the neck and body of the pancreas medially. About 80%, depending on the series, originate in the duodenum, and the duodenal gastronomas are smaller, around a cm, where the pancreatic ones are in the 3 to 4 centimeters. So it is a challenge to, to find the duodenal lesions. They can be smaller, and we'll show you some examples of that, but you have to be very careful. Good distension of the stomach and proximal small bowel is critical, whether you use water or whether you use something like volumen, you gotta distend it so that you can see it. And again, these tumors are highly vascular. I may have ring-like enhancement, and here's that gastronoma triangle. And some examples, here's a nice case, multiple lesions in the duodenum. Gastronomas can be multiple. Sometimes you have one lesion and multiple nodes, but very nice visualization. Here's another set of images. Okay, very nice case. What else could this be? Could it, it could be a carcinoid tumor, that's a possibility. Metastatic renal cell carcinoma, that's a possibility. But there aren't many choices for this lesion. And all the choices mean surgery. Glucogonoma, what about that? A little bit older, 40 to 60, sometimes toward the 60s. Male to female ratios, even about one to one. They're typically sporad sporadic, but do occur occasionally with MEN1. Most are malignant and about three quarters of the time are ultimately fatal. They typically arise in the body or tail of the pancreas. And remember this 4D syndrome, but the dermatologic findings are the ones that typically are the presentation. The diabetes, DVT, and depression are all part of the same process. They're typically vascular in the five to six centimeter range. And metastatic disease to liver is not uncommon. And here's just one nice example of a large vascular tumor. Is there anything specific about this? Is invading the splenic vein? The answer is no. What else? VIPomas. We mentioned the syndrome watery diarrhea hypokalemia. Age range 50 to 60s. It's called Werner-Morrison syndrome, pancreatic cholera, WHDA syndrome. About 75% of VIPomas arise in the pancreas, 20% were extrapancreatic and neurogenic, and the remainder were extrapancreatic and non-neurogenic, but typically we're thinking pancreatic lesions. When we do find them, they're most common in the tail of the pancreas, and they're typically large, so not a difficult diagnostic dilemma. When they're smaller, they enhance homogeneously. When they're larger, they're cystic and may contain calcifications, which is the same story I've given you with any of these pancreatic neuroendocrine tumors. The majority are malignant and metastases are typically present in about 60-80% of cases at presentation. And here's just a nice example, large mass, tail of pancreas, hypervascular, areas of necrosis. It's important to recognize, as I said from the start, that these lesions look very similar, hypervascular pancreatic mass, you know it's malignant, so clinical history becomes critical. If you have the right clinical history, you can be very specific as saying whether it's hyperfunctioning or not. Last thing is somatostatinomas. Less than 2% of neuroendocrine tumors, again, the same average age, about 50, male-to-female ratio is one-to-one. -one. Most occur in the pancreas, the periampular region of the duodenum. And when we say pancreas, we mean, peri mean the pancreatic head. And they're associated with neurofibromatosis type 1. 80% of these cases are incidental findings, while about 20% have symptoms ranging from diabetes, cystiaterea, diarrhea, colothiasis, to weight loss. 
Somatostatin inhibits intestinal absorption and release of insulin, glucagon and gastrin, and pancreatic enzymes, which leads to some of the symptoms like diabetes, theaterrhea, diarrhea, weight loss, and the like. About half of these arise in the pancreatic head, and about half, rather, maybe a better way of putting it, about half arise in the pancreas, the majority of which are in the pancreatic head. And again, these lesions are typically large, uh, but when they're in the duodenum, they're not quite as large. And here's just a nice example. This is in a patient with neurofibromatosis, vascular lesion seen near the patient's common duct, hypervascular. This was a somatostatin ulma. Very nice example. What else? Non-functioning uh, tumors, although they're considered non-functioning, they may secrete pancreatic polypeptides or other hormones, but they typically don't have clinical symptoms as the hormones secreted may be inert or its volume is too low to cause symptoms. Mean age, again, that 50 to 55, slight female predominance, and again, most cases are sporadic, but you can see them with MEN1 or von Hippel-Lindau syndrome. We're seeing them at smaller sizes now, but the typical average size is five to six centimeters. Uh, lesions may have necrosis and calcification as they get larger. Distribution does not favor any specific portion of the gland. And metastatic disease, which will determine outcome, is present in 60 to 80% of cases. The syndromes we mentioned before, MEA type 1, think about parathyroid hyperplasia or adenoma, pituitary adenomas in addition to the neuroendocrine tumors, and von Hippel-Lindau, think hemangioblastomas of the retina and CNS, think about clear cell renal cell carcinomas, think pheos, think pancreatic serous cyst adenomas, which are in fact are more common as a pancreatic lesion than a neuroendocrine tumor in von Hippel-Lindau. In terms of treatment, uh, three-year survival is over 80% when your patient does not have metastasis and 56% with metastasis. Treatment is typically surgery. Poor prognostic factors include larger size, vascular neural invasion, high mitotic rate, high KI67 index, necrosis, or chromosomal losses or gains. There's an article coming out in Science on this subject in the next couple of weeks, which is worthwhile reading. As I mentioned, surgery is the only curative therapy. So surgeons are more aggressive with this type of tumor. Octreotide can be used often successfully, at least in the short term, for liver metastasis. RF ablation or chemolymbization can also be used. And there are new chemotherapeutic agents that are being uh, developed. Now, I'll just show you what else could be vascular in the pancreas. I'll show you two points made from this case. This patient has a left nephrectomy, and the answer is going to be, most typically, metastatic renal cell carcinoma. But just like classic neuroendocrine tumors, if you look at this venous phase, which looks pretty nice, you don't see a mass in the pancreas. But look at the tail. I don't, still don't see anything. But look at it in arterial phase imaging. Look at this three to four centimeter mass that's very obvious that you missed. So metastatic renal cell carcinoma looks identical to neuroendocrine tumors and behaves identical. Typically a hypervascular lesion, with, often without much mass effect when it's not large enough, but it quickly becomes isodense. Very, very easy to miss these lesions unless you're doing arterial phase imaging. And METS from renal cell, and 85% of renal cells are primary hypervascular tumor. METS, whether it's to nodes or pancreas or liver, are typically hypervascular. So again, if you don't do early phase imaging, you're going to miss it. There is one other pitfall that can be confused with an islet cell tumor. 
It's this case of a patient who was sent to us for an islet cell tumor. We were doing preoperative staging and surgical planning, and there's a vascular lesion by the tail of the pancreas. But when you look carefully, that's not an islet cell. That's a splenic artery aneurysm, which you can see very nicely on these images. So very, very easy to make a mistake in diagnosis unless you're careful. And splenic artery aneurysm, the other thing is accessory spleen. Here's a good example of an accessory spleen. Sometimes it's easy to separate, sometimes it's not. Sometimes there's an accessory spleen sitting inside the pancreas. Looks identical to an islet cell tumor. Patients get surgery. Um, key thing with thinking about um, PET versus accessory spleen, the, the spleen, the accessory spleen and the normal spleen will enhance very similar in terms of arterial blushing and then wash out on venous face blush. So you can watch things very carefully and it can be very simple. But again, it's not an easy diagnosis. Here's a case where, look at these two images, you don't see much, but when I was looking, look at this small lesion coming off the tail of the pancreas. Looks like a neuroendocrine tumor. A tag red blood cell study was done to look whether it was a splenule and that was negative. The patient underwent surgery. This patient, uh, this was a splenule. So again, it can be a very difficult diagnosis. Another thing I've seen confused is this case. This patient was referred to us for an islet cell tumor. Vascular lesion, or should I say vascular process, head of pancreas. And at first glance, you might say, aha, neuroendocrine tumor. But at second glance, you recognize this is vascular. This is a pseudoaneurysm of the GDA. And pseudoaneurysms, GDA, hepatic artery, even sometimes celiac or SMA, can simulate a vascular lesion. And here this patient had embolization. So again, a very tricky diagnosis, something to think about. A couple other things. Um, an article we published, or is in process of being published from Hopkins on uh, Castleman's disease, had a few examples of Castleman's disease mimicking a pancreatic tumor. Now, in this case, you can see the mass by the pancreatic head, but it's not hypervascular. But in this case, it is. And in this case, we thought it was, or I thought it was an islet cell tumor. You can think about Hamoudi tumor because it was a young patient. Adenocarcinoma, unlikely. Nodal disease, possibly, but I thought it was pancreatic. So I was thinking islet cell versus Hamoudi, and this was Castleman's disease. So a very, very unusual case. Okay? So that kind of covers my thoughts about the pancreas. Now let me cover, this will be a little bit longer talk than I typically do, but I think it's worth it. And let me give you some things I have left. What's new with virtual colonoscopy? There was a set of articles, here's one by Moad, that made the point that patients liked virtual colonoscopy better, that if they didn't get it, they wouldn't have gotten screened. When patients had both studies, they preferred virtual colonoscopy. So again, very good information. Now, one of the points that was made in this article, the way people got virtual colonoscopy is someone told them about it, either personal recommendation, something they read, the referring physician. So it's important for us to really inform patients about this possibility. One of the other things commonly criticized with virtual colonoscopy is the fact we pick up other findings which may need to further workup and potential costs. And this article by Verapen made the point that, yes, it does cost money, but we pick up important things. And in fact, it increased the risk 
and increase the findings of high-risk patients or high-risk lesions by 78%. Because what happened was, in their series, seven high-risk lesions were identified, six extracolonic malignancies and one AAA that needed uh, surgery. And they had only detected six colon cancers. So the point being that now they increase the odds of identifying high-risk lesions from 9 to 16, or by 78%. And when you looked at it, when you looked at their results, 46% in extracolonic findings. The majority were insignificant. This resulted in a certain number of studies and a certain number of surgeries but the cost per patient was only about $50 extra. So their rationalization is that it was indeed very cost effective. Okay, what else? I've been reading some work about protocols and work, working uh, more efficiently. A couple of about contrast media, typical CTSS question, what do we give? Well, positive oral contrast, oral omnipaque was shown to be ideal. Patients preferred it over other agents. It gave good bowel opacification with no complication. 81% of patients preferred it over dilute diatrosate sodium. Okay, so very good compliance. Coke and Pepsi never competed so well. Now, another article that was published was talking about consultation and uh, the role of reviewing images at a tertiary center. And at Hopkins, we have, we're a tertiary center, obviously, we do a lot of reviewing and often we'll change either the diagnosis or the staging. This article said 37% of cancer patients presented had important information, uh, major changes, and provided uh, this second review, important information, in up to 50% of cases. And this was particularly true uh, in uh, breast cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, but especially in lung cancer. Now, one problem with this paper, and I agree that reviewing it by experts with more knowledge than often the primary radiologist had will help you do better, but to be fair, the problem with this article to me was that they commented that they never looked at the original reports and they only went by what the oncologist told them. Well, maybe the oncologist was wrong. Maybe he didn't read the report. Maybe he got the information secondhand. Original reports were not available at the time of the conference. So you want to be very careful, as the authors do comment themselves. We do not know whether there was a misdiagnosis in the original report or if it was misunderstood by the oncologist, whether comparisons were carried out. Nevertheless, the management decision is made by the treating oncologist, and it's his opinion that counts. Well, that's great to say, but I think the point is communication is critical, and you can't call it an incorrect radiology read if someone doesn't read the report or doesn't pay attention to what the report says. And we know that this communication stuff, another article actually Brooke wrote, is critical. They make communication errors in the three classes, documentation, communication of inaccurate and incomplete information, and failures in the communication loop. There's no doubt we all have this issue. Human errors, active failures, these are all problems and hopefully these will also be things we work on carefully and find solutions. So hopefully I've showed you a number of interesting things. Um, this is the end of this talk, but hopefully only the beginning of a great 2011. And with that, have a great day.